Welcome to Managing Marketing and uh, today we're in the Straits Clan Club in Singapore and I'm sitting here with Jörg Dietzel, Chief Brand Consultant, Lecturer at SMU and also um, someone I've known for quite a few years. Many, many years. Yeah, so I really appreciate making time. Welcome Jörg. Thank you. Well actually, thank you for inviting me to the club. <laughs> Good to see you again. So um, you've only recently returned to Singapore after uh, time in Korea and Germany. What have you been doing? Well, um, I had the chance to become a client and, and who working in advertising uh, on the agency side doesn't want to be a client for once, right? You, you, you want to be the one who is pre being presented to rather than the one who is presenting yeah. and who can make decisions and who has the big budget. So, um, so all my life I've been on the agency side, uh, so from Germany to UK to China, uh, Hong Kong and then Singapore, so, um, which was good and I enjoyed it and big agencies, DDB, BBDO, whoever, Beatty, um, but uh, when my ex-client came uh, six years ago and said, do you want to be marketing director in Korea? I said, yeah, why not? Why I, not? Why not, right? Because the grass is, is always greener, isn't yeah. it? It always, when you're in an agency, it always feels like that the marketers, your yeah. clients, have got a much easier life. Yeah. It's yeah. not true, is it? Not really. I mean, they have an easier life as far as having the budget and being able to make decisions is concerned, but they are very much um, part of this kind of hierarchy, especially in a market like Korea, and I would think Japan, um, where... Um, you think you can make decisions, but you can't. There's always somebody else. There's your boss, there's the CEO, there's the MD, whoever, and somebody else is also, you need to, even as the head of marketing, you're not free. Now, it's interesting because all of those examples were up a hierarchy. Yeah. I've also spoken to a lot of CMOs that go, and it's the dealers, it's the distributors, it's yeah. also all of those, um, you know, in a way, your uh, go-to-market chain have also got demands and opinions True. and attitudes that you have to accommodate yeah. as well. It's on, it's on every different level. So it's on, on people that you work with and uh, um, people that you work for and uh, also people that are on the same level, the head of sales who comes to your office, who stands in your office in the morning and says, oh, my, my showroom traffic has gone down. Do something. Yeah. And uh, because they think advertising is an, an immediate plug for their problem, which it isn't because I'm thinking more medium or long term and he's very short term because he's measured by the numbers every week. It's interesting you should say that because it, the industry is really struggling with this concept of long-term brand yeah. value yeah. and short-term sales or revenue. Um, and a lot of marketers are under a huge amount of pressure to deliver that short-term result, but often at the expense of the long-term, aren't they? Yeah. So, How do you keep the focus? Well, I, I think it depends on, on where you are. The closer you are to the market, the more of a more short-term uh, focus you have. 
Um, so in the role after Korea, when I moved to the to the global headquarter of, of Audi, uh, it was much, much more long term. I mean, we took one year to do a campaign. Right. Because there's so many things to think about. So, uh, so we, we left the responsibility to uh, move any numbers or something to the markets and we just made sure that we protect the brand and we create materials that would work for the brand and uh, uh, had to deal with purchasing and with controlling and with legal who wouldn't allow anything and uh, so uh, it, it took a long time and therefore uh, by nature of our job it was kind of very much more kind of long-term focus. Now um, I can imagine one of the reasons that you really uh, this job appealed or this opportunity appealed was that this is a brand I remember when I met you was a brand that you were emotionally quite committed to because yeah. you, when we met, you were driving an Audi. You you love the cars, you love the product. Um, in becoming a marketer responsible for that brand, do you think loving the brand is a positive, or can it also be a negative? I'm not. Sh I'm not sure how it can be a negative. Um, I think it helps. But I'm not sure it's necessary. Right. So, um, because we've all done in our in our advertising roles or branding roles, um, I've done many um, campaigns and projects for brands that I didn't love or that I didn't understand so well, and I really needed to learn a lot and uh, and get myself into it. I remember doing a, a rebranding for a diapers brand. And I had no idea about the different brands that were on the markets and what can they do and things like absorbency and backflow. You don't want to know. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but I found out, and I think that's the um, that's the promise and the and the uh, the, the positive um, thing of working on different brands. Uh, the more you know, the more you can really appreciate the brand. You may not love it, but you really see what goes into it. You hear from different people that, that spend all their lives working with that brand and uh, and maybe not love, but respect is something that develops within you. So you said you're not sure how it could be a negative. I've had some uh, people tell me that yeah, the danger is if you completely love the brand, you can often not get perspective on things such as weakness or, or what you know why other people may not, and that to be able to be objective in the role of the CMO is really important. Yeah. What do you think, or do you think it's possible to still love it and be objective? I think so. I think so because you're being confronted with all the evidence and the research that you do and the brand tracking in comparison to your competitors brands so I think you you can and you also need to be open to that because otherwise how can you protect the brand if you close your eyes to potential weaknesses that you as a marketer can can somehow solve and uh, so I, I, I think it's very much necessary even a condition. I think. I think love is only real if you see the full picture, and not just the sunny side. Even in a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting how that that metaphor, that example, actually does work, doesn't yeah. it? Because you need to accept the weaknesses. Yeah. But by accepting them, you also know how to minimize them yeah. or, or defocus exactly. those, and then amplify the positive things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that really helped. Um, when so obviously when he asked me would I have would I have joined BMW or Mercedes or somebody completely different, maybe I'm not sure. But obviously it helped that I had a relationship with the brand. Uh, he was my former client. Yeah, yeah. But you loved that brand. Yeah, and you still do. Don't I you? still do. 
I no, still and, do. And look, the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing this is I think it's really, for, personally, um, when you work with a marketer that is doing a professional job, yeah. it's different to working with someone who is passionate about the brands that they're working with. Yes. It just gives them an extra level of enthusiasm, energy, and I remember as a creative, in an agent, you know, working in an agency as a copywriter, when you're working with a marketer that is passionate about their brand, it rubs off. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's that's one of the things we have to be careful that we don't lose, you know, the passion yeah. for yeah. brands. No, I agree. I think it's important. I think it helps. But at the same time, um, I think it's not so much a matter of uh, plus or minus, is it good, is it bad, but it's a matter of perspective. Yeah. It's a matter of um, point of view. What's your point of view? Because I've met many people um, in the global headquarter who have never worked on any other brand right. and, and all they could think and sleep and eat and dream was the brand. So therefore, sometimes their perspective was a, was a purely kind of inside perspective. And yeah, they oh, yeah, had no perspective. It's, it's, it's one of those clients, you know, you, you've heard that from clients as well, who say, oh, we don't have a competi competi competition, we don't yeah, have com so competitors good. because we're, we're different, which is a completely inside-out view because yeah. outside-in, Everybody has competition because people have choices, yeah, right? True. And uh, so to keep that kind of perspective, and I think it helps if you come from the outside, from the agency or from a different market, and to keep that, and somebody says, oh, this is the, the only and the best ever, and to question that and say, look, I love it, it's great, but maybe others also offer something that, that's similar, let's be fair, and let's see how we can address that. Now, I also remember just you know, before you took the job as the, um, the uh, uh, marketing director at Audi in Korea, you published a book mm -hmm. on advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, if I remember rightly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of this was driven from your experience uh, teaching undergrads yeah. Uh, advertising yeah. that you couldn't find a book that actually gave them sort of contemporary comprehensive knowledge. Contemporary, comprehensive, and um, that also looked at Asia um, as as, as a as a market or as a as a region um, because all the books that were available. So when you when you start teaching, all the representatives from the big publishing houses come to see you because they want you to use their books because if they can con convince you. Bam, they sold 55 copies, yeah. right? Because all the students have to have it. Um, so I did that at the beginning. I worked with those big, fat um, American textbooks. And then I found after a while that um, some of the cases, many of the cases they use are cases of brands that only exist in the US mm -hmm. and uh, are not relevant at all to an Asian audience. And I didn't find anything that has a kind of Asian focus without forgetting about the rest of the yeah. world, obviously. So I thought I'd, I'd put something important. together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that must have been a huge job to actually uh, write a book from scratch. It was okay because I divided it into into different um, chapters, looking at different media channels, looking at different uh, how to work with your agency, all of those things. But uh, I, it, it's also heavy on case studies, mm -hmm. and uh, I think I had ten cases in depth um, that have run in Asia, or only in Asia, or also in Asia, 
and uh, covering different channels. At the time, there wasn't so much online. Um, and uh, I think that helps to fill the pages if you describe the cases. And this is what you get from the clients and their agencies. They're very happy to be included. So it wasn't that bad. Okay. Now, that's, uh, what was that, seven years ago? That was more like nine Eight, years ago. Yeah. Nine years? Oh, my God. Okay, nine years ago. Um, so how much has the world of advertising changed in that nine years? Is When you look back on the book, how much would you have to change it now? 60%. That's significant, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and, and I noticed it not so much because I went through the book again, but um, based on the book were my teaching materials. And uh, a, a few weeks ago when I started the new semester here in Singapore, um, I just opened up my old file and thought, you know, I can just follow this narrative. And I found out I couldn't because it's, it's uh, full of things that are not so relevant anymore and other things are missing. The whole how to work with influencers, social media—it's all—it's all missing. Yeah. And uh, and the the realization was I have to create new materials. But the realization was also the world of advertising has moved on, but many advertisers and their agencies haven't noticed. Interesting. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? And because in the past two years, when we created global campaigns with world-class agencies. Um, from the headquarter, which then hopefully were used by the markets uh, to launch new products and reposition the brand. Um, the way we worked with our big agencies, full service agencies, so-called, and the way they created something was, was like madman times. It yeah. was, they, they, they think in TV commercials. Yeah. That's the first thing they come up with. We may not even have TV as a channel. Uh, TV may not even be relevant if we are doing a campaign for Audi A1, which which is aimed at millennials or, or in the mid twenties or something. Right? They don't watch TV. Yeah. If if anything, they stream some uh, Netflix without any ads in it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the way they were thinking with and it was it was a film, and then maybe some print ads, and then yeah maybe oh yeah we need to do something digital. Hmm. Yeah. Let's put the film on Facebook. <laughs> and and we were like, no, it doesn't work like that, right? Yeah. It it's cannot work like that. So they work in silos. We work in silos because on the client side, uh, somebody did PR, somebody did digital, somebody did uh, above the line, somebody did events, somebody did below the line. So it, it's, it's all fragmented. And because the global full-service agencies, award-winning everything, great creative potential, cannot do it or don't do it or are not interested, Everybody goes to specialized agencies yeah. like We Are Social, like Razorfish, and said, okay, you do the social part. So all of a sudden you have two campaigns. Yeah. And uh, it's really frustrating from a client point of view to organize that because it doesn't somehow, it doesn't yet work together. You do a photo shoot for a print campaign in Los Angeles because you need the light. Yeah. Right? That, that still happens. Mm -hmm. And um, you have a photographer for print who does five motives for $50,000, and then you have a separate photographer for online, for social, who does 50 uh, motives for $5,000. Yeah. <laughs> and they're fighting, you know, who can have the car now, and uh, so... And even more complex, and, and you pointed out, you know, you end up with three or four different agencies yeah. or producing content. And then you've got the next part, which is the media, 
is then being, you, you paid media, is being um, planned and bought by a separate company again. Yeah. And they've probably been going off and doing their media plan almost in isolation yeah. from the content that exactly. you're producing. And the other part is, where is owned media in all this? You know, the, like everyone focused, media agencies are love focusing on paid media. But very few of them actually think about the owned media. Yeah. And you've got uh, you know, the company doing your social, so your shared and earned media. It's really quite fragmented. That must be a huge challenge when you're in that role as a, uh, a marketer. It is. It, it is. It's, it's very much fragmented in the people that you're dealing with to execute your idea or your vision into the different channels and all of that. And that's one thing. And the other thing is you're fighting against some myths because many of the decision makers, like the, the boss of the boss, yeah. the global head of marketing, the capo de capo, they are of a certain age. Mm -hmm. So they still believe the world is like it was um, not 10 years ago, but maybe five years ago. So as far as social is concerned, um, they think, okay, if it's good enough, it will go viral automatically. <laughs> and so their brief to me would be, make me a viral. Yeah, literally, and, make me uh, a Yeah, viral. make me a viral. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's all going to be organic and everything. And they don't, they refuse to listen and refuse to believe that that doesn't work anymore. Very, very few cases where you don't have to see it, you don't have to push, you don't have to support something that you put online because it's just too much stuff. Mm. And, and you need to cut through, you need to give it a, the initial push at least. Or you need to ride some kind of elevator because you link up with a movie, you link up with a celebrity, whatever else. Yeah. Um, now, I noticed you're, uh, you're calling yourself a chief uh, brand consultant, and one of the things you've always been focused on is brand. Yeah. Brand and advertising, brand's actually part of marketing, mm -hmm. and advertising is just a subset of marketing. Um, you said that uh, advertising's changed around 60% yep. in nine years since yep. you wrote the book. But has brand and marketing changed also? by that amount or is it still fundamentally the same? It's still fundamentally the same. Some channels obviously have changed and uh, the way you uh, reach people and talk to people, I think it has become a little bit more difficult and, and fragmented. But um, the way you set up the brand, um, the requirements um, that it has to be relevant to your target audience, that you need to be differentiated from what the competition does in order to even have a, give people a reason to go with you, that you need to be consistent across all your touch points, and then you come to communication. I think that's, that's something that fundamentally um, hasn't changed, and the change is coming in at the, at the tail end of the whole process, which is how do you communicate the brand, but how you set it up, I think is, is pretty much similar. One disagreement um, about um, your introduction to this part of the conversation where you said branding is part of marketing, I think it's much more, because okay. it's, it's part of part of the whole um, organization is also part of HR because who are the people that you hire and and uh, and how do you enable them to reflect the brand and be little brand ambassadors right how does finance chase the people who owe you money right if you have a position in your the friendly brand and they send nasty letters there's also a disconnect so it's pretty much everything you do 
Yeah, that's Brand, why that's why it should be with the CFO, with the CEO, rather okay. than just the marketing director. Right? So, so you're of the group that believes that the CEO is the ultimate chief brand. Yes, yes, officer. definitely, because that's the only that's the first point where it all comes together, mm. right? If it's just with me in marketing and and everybody else doesn't doesn't care so much or is not aware of it. Um, I have a much, much harder life because there's some things that influence the brand because they're a touch point which I don't control. Because, yeah, brand is every experience that someone has yeah. with that brand, isn't yeah. it? And yet, um, we talk about the customer experience and there are CEOs that then say, well, that has to be handled by marketing. But as you know, marketing doesn't have the ability to influence all exactly. of those touch points. Exactly. So why does that conundrum, that uh, misalignment, how does it get resolved? I think the only way is, is if more and more CEOs understand that, okay, it needs to it needs to be me. It needs to be somehow in the organizational matrix, it needs to be something that I'm involved in. Um, Recently, we had a, a case here where a brand had a big problem, and uh, uh, they um, they had a fried little lizard in in their chips. Um, thing, and and it happened. A product right? problem. A product problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, so the question was, and somebody asked me, okay, uh, so so what do you do? You know, if that happens to your brand, and I said that also fundamentally hasn't changed. Rule number one: surprise, surprise, don't lie. Don't try and hide the truth, which many do, but just come out, uh, say, okay, it happened, sorry about this, we're going to uh, change the way we, we, we do things to prevent it. And, uh, and in, in that conversation, in some local radio station, they also said, okay, so how much money would you, would you put aside, would you budget for branding under marketing? And I said, I can't answer that. I, because it's it's more than that. It needs to be on a kind of higher level. So I and think yet there are a lot of brands and a lot of marketers that will have in their budget brand yeah. communications yeah. and then acquisition communications and then retention communications yeah. because they're taking a very com communications focus. Yeah. And this is probably leading to the big criticism that we hear, especially from the C-suite CEOs, that marketing has become more and more about communications mm. and less and less about business building. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair...? I think, I think it is, but I think it's partly also their own fault because the way they organize themselves is, is, is narrowing the, the remit that marketing has. Mm. Um, I fought for two years in Korea to include product and price in marketing because it was under sales mm. and uh, and I talked to my CEO and I showed him other cases from other companies eventually those three four people who did product and price came over to my side and I needed to have that because obviously that influences the brand how do you price yourself into the market and what kind of product do you bring into the market Absolutely. do you just bring the product that is easy to sell mm -hmm. in gray in black in white and in silver or do you also bring in a, a yellow TT which stands in the showroom is very hard to sell, but it makes a statement for the brand. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, tension between marketing or brand yeah. and sales? Yeah. Because salespeople almost are totally incentivized on volume. Yeah. Uh, whereas marketers should be incentivized on margin. Yeah. Because ultimately, the skill of marketing is to have people willing to pay more 
for the same product or service because they perceive the value. Exactly. Whereas, how many times have you seen salespeople discount price, give away margin oh, yeah. to hit their volume? Yeah. Yeah, they it's don't a care. Tension. They don't care, and it was this this long discussion that we had about uh, how much discount do you give? Because if they're only so, even even their KPIs should be a mixed calculation of of, of of both, and not just how how much do they sell. Yeah. Because then the price doesn't matter, but if they discount too much, it really hurts my brand, and then I need to reinvest in into something and need to work with some celebrity, or whatever, to try and and push up the image. And uh, so, if we could somehow find some common ground, that would help. Yeah. And again, that sits with the CEO, doesn't it? Yeah. Because ultimately, the CEO yeah. and the CFO will be the ones that set the KPIs, the yeah. performance uh, metrics for the organization. If they get that wrong, you'll end up with uh, people working almost against each other. Exactly. That could happen. Another area that uh, you often see tension. And uh, it's become really obvious to me in the last um, six months is corporate affairs or corporate strategy and marketing strategy. Mm. And the reason for the tension is corporate affairs is about, or corporate strategy is about minimizing risk, uh, maintaining the status quo, keeping things very you know, safe and secure. Whereas marketing is often about pushing you, draw, drawing attention, getting awareness, getting people to engage. And the two almost can be seen as working against each other. Have you ever had that situation or seen that situation? Not so much with corporate affairs, but uh, maybe with corporate affairs in the expression of uh, PR. So uh, they're obviously closely related. Yeah. And uh, uh, in the market, PR was part of marketing, which made great sense because there's lots of synergies to be had. If I, if I know where my advertising budget goes, it gives me a totally different platform to talk to journalists, maybe from that publication. Um, and um, so it, it really, really helps to work hand in hand and create those synergies. On the global level, we were very separate. Marketing and PR was completely separate, and the whole corporate um, affairs department was under PR. Um, so it made our life very, very hard because uh, uh, they made some decisions um, about launches, about end of secrecy, about what can be shown, what cannot be shown, that had no direct um, relationship with what we did in the campaign. And uh, in the end, um, from an outside view, from a consumer point of view, they don't differentiate, they don't know where this message comes from, right? They, they see a picture, they see a message in a magazine, and then they see an ad. They don't differentiate and say, oh, this comes from that department and this comes from this department, right? It's just the brand talking. So in order not to confuse people, uh, but rather create some synergies, it would make great sense if this was in one hand. But unfortunately, with many, many marketers, it isn't. Because a lot of um, corporate PR is about talking to shareholders, investors yeah. and the like. Yeah. And uh, it's the CEO, you know, going back to the argument that the CEO is the ultimate brand yeah. champion or yeah. the brand custodian. Yeah. Uh, they'll often have very different messages for investors and shareholders yeah. or government yeah. than consumer. How do you strike that balance? I think I think it's, it's really hard. I think that it, it comes back to understanding that uh, nothing works in complete segmentation anymore. I remember the days it did once, though, oh yeah, didn't it? it did. It did per um, target group and it did per market. So you didn't have to have alignment between markets because there was no internet. 
and yes, a few people traveled, and they see a different billboard in in, in Bilbao than they see in London. Doesn't matter, no. right? Now everything has opened up. Everybody sees everything, and uh, and that's why the need to have some kind of level of consistency is is much much greater, and uh, it's about people in power realizing that and understanding. Okay, we need to. Uh, decide maybe there's a there's a brand strategy department which send, kind of sets the parameters that are then kind of cascaded down into the different and it should be sitting in that CEO office yes, it with be. corporate affairs you know talking about what the shareholders and government needs and what consumer needs as far as the brand yeah you know how do we actually position this organisation and its brands yeah uh, Audi is a uh, branded house, isn't it? It's yes. a brand that's also the company. Yes. What about the complexity that happens when you've got a house of brands? You know, the P&Gs, the Mondelez, the Unilevers, where you've got these master holding companies and then infinite numbers of brands underneath. Yeah. Where do, where do you think the role of brand purpose comes in because I can see purpose works very well when you've got a branded house. Yeah. Because the organisation yeah. has a purpose mm. and that can be re reflected if relevant in the communication. But we're seeing lots of marketers in a house of brands trying to do this brand purpose. Yeah. And they often end up with a different purpose for each brand. Yeah. I think um, there's different ways of looking at it. Uh, to me, it's 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 very straightforward. I think many of those kind of umbrella brands or the kind of you know mother brands that are behind many of those brands, uh, to really build them up as a brand is often a kind of vanity uh, project for the kind of global CEO because you can't buy that, right? You cannot buy a Unilever, right? No, but you, you can buy, buy shares in Unilever. Yes, different also, story, different yeah. story, different different target group. But from a consumer branding yeah. point of no. view, um, and they, they still try, right? Because they want to see, oh, this is also a brand, and if it's a Unilever on the on the on the detergent and not a PNG, people think, oh, it's better or it's worse, whatever, right? And uh, and and I think it's it's a lot of wasted time that that you actually spend time on that. I would really concentrate on the brands that you can buy in the shop. Because Regardless of where they come from, how are they different and, and what do they bring to the now, table? I've had this uh, conversation with uh, corporate strategy and they say the reason for putting a Unilever company or a P&G company or a Mondelez company is because the consumer that you're selling the brand to or promoting the brand to may also be the shareholder or the investor and so they see it as a missed opportunity. But do you think it also becomes just another thing that complicates yeah. what is already a difficult yeah. communication yeah. and increasing? Yeah. I think yes, if you're an investor, obviously you care, but you get your information from other sources, you, you, you read the annual report, whatever else. Um, but for the normal consumer who's just using the products, I think they don't care. I think they don't know. You ask them who makes Dash and who makes Lenore and all of that, most of the people would like, uh, no, no idea. As yeah. long as the product works, exactly. they like it. Exactly. Mm. So, so I think it's a, it's a bit of a red herring to, to go into that and build kind of brands on top of brands. Uh, and, I and I don't think it's necessary. I think it's vanity. 
Yeah. And what do you think of the idea of brands having a purpose, a larger purpose than just doing what they do? Interesting as, as question. Interesting question. I think it it um, obviously that's there's something that is currently discussed a lot, and uh, and I I have the impression, especially with younger target groups, there's a um, there's a demand for that. That people are asking that question: What do you stand for? Uh, are you just here? What's your purpose? Right? Are you just here to sell me a product? Mm. Uh, okay, if if that's your purpose, I will I will judge you based on how good is the product, how sustainable, whatever, whatever. Or is there anything more behind it? And uh, I think it's important to have it, but it's also tricky because it can completely backfire and not be credible. Mm. And people will think, oh, you're you're just here to sell me something. You're just pretending you care for something. Yesterday. Um, we were looking at a commercial in my class and a student presented a, a, a drink driving campaign don't drink and drive by Budweiser right yeah and so we were discussing why do they do that and and the students were so were so cute because they were all oh because they care because so many people die and everything no. and i said okay could it also have something to do with the fact that the opportunities for an alcohol brand to advertise are very very restricted you are not allowed to show the group of friends having fun drinking uh, bud anymore in most markets so they have to find other ways to get the brand out there to keep the awareness up and the students were like oh we hadn't really thought of it right yeah. so they were giving them a lot of um, leeway to kind of pursue the, the, the value chain. Maybe the problem is that uh, after all the years we've just become cynical. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But, I, but, but I think still positive. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, but I think you need to do it and, uh, and it's possible and it can even be a differentiator. So, example, at Audi, um, a few years ago we had those three kind of brand pillars, sporty, sophisticated and uh, progressive. Okay, so uh, you need to make a decision what are you pushing, right? And sporty is important and we have motor racing and everything else, Um, but it's not a differentiator because BMW is seen as more sporty, yeah. right? So, so you, you, can't, you can't take that away from them. It's very expensive to do that. Sophisticated, yes, it is sophisticated yeah. and many stitches in the leather seats of the A8, but Mercedes-Benz is seen as more sophisticated right? in many parts of the world. So, progressive, right? Nobody owns progressive, right? And uh, so, Vorsprung durch Technik expresses a little bit of that, that kind of advancement or advantage. And uh, so, so we thought we would push that, but that has so many, um, so many ways you can communicate it. It has, it has to do with technology. It has to do with the way you do things. It has to do with uh, piloted driving, artificial intelligence, all of that. And it also has to do with an attitude or a value as the company. So it could be socially progressive. It is. And that's why a few markets uh, picked up on that. So the Americans had this big campaign uh, with a Super Bowl commercial for women and, uh, and same pay for the same work and everything. Of course, they, got, they were very scrutinized after that ran and yeah. people said, oh, how many board directors do you have that are female? So, <laughs> and that's the point, isn't it? It's going to happen. I think if you go down the path of social purpose yeah. as a brand, yeah. you need to have absolute yes. authenticity. Yes. Because you have to live the promise. 
Yes. And if you don't, you quickly get found yeah. out we saw it with Gillette. Yeah. And then, at the, and, and around the same time, we had Nike. Yeah. But Nike did it yeah. so much better yeah. because it was happy when you held it up to scrutiny. Yeah. They had a long history exactly. of supporting the underdog or yeah. supporting the person that yeah. was not the mainstream yeah. of society. Whereas Gillette, you know, years and years they've told us the best the man can get. Now suddenly, toxic masculinity yeah. is a bad thing. So maybe it's not the best a man yeah. can get. And then they go against it, and that also backfires. Yeah. because nobody believes it, right? You, it's, it's a risk and you have to get it right. Um, about a year ago, uh, after a presentation for, a, uh, for some car launch, agency said to me, okay, there's one more thing, right? In kind of Steve Jobs fashion, one more thing. Okay, show me. And they get, showed me a script for a film that had to do with the Saudi Arabian women being allowed to drive on oh, yes, the 24th yes, yes. of yeah. June last year. So I loved it. I showed it to a few people, they were not sure, they loved the script, but oh, what if it backfires and everything. So I ran it by my colleagues in, uh, in Dubai and in Riyadh. Yep. And I said, what do you think? And they said, we love it. It was about opening doors. So he's opening doors for her as they leave the house, open, open, open. And then she opens the, the passenger door and goes like, you sit down now, right? And then she gets <laughs> got into the driver's seat and it's time for more open doors. We, con we welcome, Audi welcomes the women of Saudi Arabia to the driver's seat. And um, so we had to make really sure that everything is authentic and correct. So we flew in some people from Saudi Arabia to make sure that every every yeah, fold of the, yeah. everything is, is correct. Because if you get a little thing wrong, people will find it and, and right you know, tell you off. So it's a risk, but um, it, it met with so much positive sentiment. So I think it pays off if it's some good, if there's some connection to the brand and uh, if it's believable. So uh, you're back in Singapore after taking, you know, working a big corporate yes. um, head office job and you're now doing your uh, chief brand consultancy. Yep. You were a brand consultant here. Yep. What's different this time around? What, how has that experience of the last six years changed your approach to brand consultancy and being a chief brand consultant? I think um, I have a better understanding of the opportunities and limitations um, that clients have. Because before you work on the agency side, you think the client is a kind of demigod and they can do everything and they have the budget and why don't they buy this idea and make it happen, right? Now I understand what it's like and that there are also some limitations. There's other stakeholders and, and all of that and budgets may be limited. And, uh, and I think that really helps, having been on both sides of the equation, um, to go in and say, well, as a client, you know, and, and, and so also to present things in a way that you know um, would fit into, their, um, into the way they work and, uh, and, and, and not come up with something completely crazy just because you can or because you want to win an award or some FE or something like that, but understand you know, there are limitations and work within that and, and make things happen. I think that is really, um, that really works and it also makes me question some of the things we do um, as in how do we develop campaigns right as a, a digital yes or no and what comes first and everything and more importantly how do we even pitch which which to me is we're getting it wrong on every single aspect mm. because on advertising we do everything 
before the pitch. We show everything, the whole campaign, everything, right? And then the client may say no, or they may steal the idea, or they may, you know. In yeah, branding, we give everything away. Yeah, in yeah. branding, we show nothing. Yeah. Because everything's based on the on research, yeah. and we don't do the research before we win the pitch, right? Mm -hmm. So we just show a structure. Everybody else is showing the same structure, more or less. Yeah. So how can they decide? We show nothing. So well, they choose the people they feel yeah. is closest to line based on people to right? their expectations yeah. and what's, what's their skill set and, and what's in their experience. Fact, uh, the pitches that we've you know, seen and run is chemistry. Yeah. Is actually the underlying. Yeah. And the, the pitch, in a way, is just an opportunity to yeah. test out the chemistry. Yeah, yeah, that's basically yeah. Yeah, what's happening in that pitch process. It's it's funny, right? It's it's so commonsensical, but at the same time, when I do this exercise with my students, who will all be marketers in a year's time, in because the, the, then the final year they will join whatever, whoever, Unilever. I know a few. Um, and um, so when you choose your agency, what are you looking at? And they come up with everything, all correct points, conflict, location, size, all the cost, things. Um, um, what have they done yeah. before, industry experience, or maybe you don't want industry experience, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Anything. And I said, this, the most important thing is missing. And I have to tell them, it's the people. Yeah. Make sure that you like and respect the people that are in front of you. And Look at the people who are going to be there after the pitch, not the ones who are yeah, flying back to London <laughs> and who are flying back to Hong Kong and everything. The people yeah. who you're going to see a lot of them. You better like them, you better respect them, and you, you better give them that kind of space to, to have a partnership um, with you. Your deep thought. It's been an absolute joy catching up. Great fun. Um, but one last question before I go. If you couldn't drive an Audi ever again, what car would you drive?